You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. If podcasting had a name, it would be the 602 Club. And that's where we are tonight to talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I'm so glad to have with me this elite team to talk about this final film for one of, well, filmmaking's biggest heroes, Indiana Jones, is Christy Morris. Christy, it's so good to have you back here in the 602 Club. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's always good to be here try to be here as much as I can but you know sharing the space and um, excited to cover this movie although I would call myself more of a um, purveyor of antiquities ah I see I see and with us grave robber extraordinaire John Mills yes Lao Che let me have the day off so that I can stop looking for Nurhachi and join the two of you to talk about in one of Indy's other adventures. Yes. So. Yes. Well, I'm so glad <laughs> yes. that he did that. I'm so glad he did that. Um, well, he's a good employer. Great benefits. <laughs> terrible severance package. Just going to say. Well, we are so excited to be here. It's a huge film for us to talk about. We've had so many big movies coming out this year, and this is just one of them. But before we dive into the conversation, just a quick thank you to everybody who's listening. We appreciate you downloading and listening to the episodes. It means a lot to us that you do so. If you like our podcast, do a few things for us. Subscribe wherever you're listening so you'll get all the shows as soon as they come out. You also uh, have the ability to review and rate us on a place like Spotify, Apple Podcasts. In fact, we would love to give it away a poster to you right now. Uh, and we need 19 more reviews before we can give that away. So go review us on Apple Podcasts and maybe you'll win that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse poster. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and we'd love to interact with you there at the 602 Club, as well as Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. The entire network is on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can also find the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference and talk to listeners from all over the world, plus our website at trek.fm. And if you do love what we do, please go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and support us. Make sure that all of these podcasts can keep coming to you each. And every week. Before we dive into anything, I just wanted to ask with both of you how you were feeling about coming into this film in the first place. Uh, obviously, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, uh, John, I believe, in 2008. Uh, yes. I'm, yeah, it was 2008. I'm it, pretty it, sure that's yeah, it. Somewhere around there. Okay. So it's it's been quite a while. Uh, and how were you feeling uh, after that film and the idea of them doing a fifth Indiana Jones movie? Well, I'm, okay, if you want to roll all the way back to after the fourth film, I was one of the few people that actually liked the fourth film and felt like I was, um, it felt like Phantom Menace all over again because everybody was like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. George Lucas. Ah, ah. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I kind of liked it, guys. It's, I don't know what's wrong. Um, and then, but going into this one, I 
honestly was, uh, I, I wasn't excited. They were like, oh, there's going to be a fifth Indiana Jones movie. And then I was like, oh, okay. Cause I like, I did the math real quick in my head and I was like, I don't know. Sure. Okay. And then, you know, all of the speculation started. What was it going to be about? Who was going to step in? And then like Spielberg is not going to be part of it. And Lucas isn't going to be active with it. And I'm kind of like, ah, you know, you, you took away the two people who really were the creative force behind it. And I went into this pretty skeptical as to what the end result would be. Yeah, I could agree with that. I would say I was in the same place. Um, honestly, I think I saw Crystal Skull one time and it's been so long. Um, I don't remember as much how I felt about that one. But I do know, although I would always love to have more Indiana Jones and it is definitely a staple of my childhood, um, I was also skeptical just because you want something to do it justice and you don't want to then be having the the last film in the franchise, since they definitely said it would be, to be left on a sour note. So I'm sure we all probably felt the same way with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, John, you and I actually covered uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull here on the network. I think it was episode 153. So if people are wanting to go back and listen to that, they can. Would love it if they did, uh, and I'm right with you. We we both actually really enjoyed Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We had some criticisms here and there, as one does of just about any film, uh, but I thought it to be kind of the perfect end for Indy. Um, you know, as our friend Yancey put it, you know, you had the Last Crusade where you had him and his father, and now you have him as a father, uh, and so it just seemed like a very natural place to wrap up. And, and of course, you know, bringing the end to the relationship with him and women with, you know, giving back his first love, Marion. And so all of that seemed to be a place where it was a good place to end. Uh, and, and I remember, you know, the conversations coming up uh, about, uh, you know, the fact that they wanted to do a fifth one, Harrison Ford wanted to do a fifth one, even after uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, mainly because he loves playing this character. And like always, they did the same thing they always did, which is George goes off and tries to think of a story and uh, give you a reason for coming back. And Stephen and, you know, Harrison just wait around uh, until that happens. And, and, they were actually actively in that until finally Lucasfilm got sold and they, you know, Disney put Indiana Jones in the back burner so they could focus on Star Wars. And so this really delays this even more. And so with all of that in the background, you know, I was fine with the idea of coming back with, you know, a story where it's Ford and, and, Lucas and Spielberg all getting the band back together one last time, right? They're the creative force behind this. Uh, and then, of course, the two main components of that being Spielberg and Lucas. I mean, they literally created this together on a beach in Hawaii. And so the fact that they weren't going to be as actively involved in that... Um, I, I think, just like you, I, I came in very trepidatious, which... I think leads me into wanting to talk just right at the opening of the film because we are 
uh, introducing a lot of things at the beginning of the film. Uh, we're introducing the adventure where we introduce our villain and our MacGuffin, what we're going to be chasing. Uh, and so before we get into the questions of all the de-aging and everything like that, uh, which we'll definitely talk about here in a second, but how do you feel this does in setting up those two very important things for the film? <laughs> so I, I was happy with it personally. I, I felt like they really come into it from a good place of bringing your nostalgia back first before we get to anything that might seem like kind of a downer um, because Raiders will always be my favorite indie movie. Um, seeing the instant callbacks to Raiders made me, my heart happy. <laughs> so, I mean, that was how I felt, but I'd be interested to see what you all think. I think it was, it, it worked fine, but it was in a large sense a mistake to start the way that they did because I got very comfortable because of how long it took to be in that. And so it was like, oh, all right, well, this is what it's going to be. Mm. Okay, cool. And I think that um, I was talking about this with my, my friend Joey, um, where uh, you know he, he was the first to really like put it in words. And I give him credit for this because he was like, when it suddenly jumped forward in time, it was jarring because it's like, oh, I've spent so much time back here with the de-aging. It wasn't regardless of how how long a time it was like if you go back to last crusade they have a little setup prequel story there too right and it works really well but it moves really briskly really fast and so i can look at this and say this is like the opening of last crusade where he's going after something and i'm seeing him when he's younger cool but then I feel like I stayed there a little bit too long. I got a little bit too comfortable with it back there. And as a result, I think it 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 causes a discordant tone at, by doing that. By it it starts off on a good foot, but it's not the same like when it steps past it is when it sort of loses a little bit of traction as it were. So yeah, I, I think that, John, you kind of hit on where I am with the film because, in, at least at this section, you know, Spielberg had this sequence in his script, in his version, about five minutes, and Mangold makes this 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you put that somewhere more like 10 minutes of storytelling... It's a much better sequence because it allows you to introduce what we want, which is the villain and the MacGuffin that we're going to be chasing, which is perfect. And it doesn't allow the sequence to uh, languish in any way. Um, like you said, there's a brisk movement. Um, and there's a lot of places in this where I could just... It, even just watching the film only once, I have. I wish I could have seen it again. I would have loved to have seen it again. But there's plenty of places where I just felt like this movie should have been cut, especially at the beginning here sequence, where it's like this is dragging on too long for no reason other than just we're doing gags, you know, like when he's uh, trying to get out of the noose and everything. And it's like, 
we're spending way too much time here when the point of this is is not to do these type of things, but it is to set up the rest of the film. And so we need to be very judicious, I think, in the time that we're spending here. And I think they just got a little bit carried away with, oh, we're going to see, quote unquote, young Indy. And I, I feel like somebody needed yes. to tell them, hey, you, you don't need 25 minutes. Maybe seven minutes of storytelling is enough. Mm-hmm. I from from that very first showing, and I've spent a lot of time with this going over it in my head. I agree so much with cutting it down, obviously. And I think the best possible intro they could have had for a de-aged Harrison Ford would have been you get on the train pretty quickly. You have them drag in a, a figure with a hood on his head and you say, we found this guy. He was lurking around while we were clearing out the castle. You, you know, exposition, exposition. This is his bag. And they open up his bag and it's got the fedora and it's got the bullwhip. And the audience is like, oh, wow. And then they pull off the hood and it's his sidekick. And you're like, oh, okay, fake out. And then you go another 30 seconds or a minute and then you hear the, you know, the, the trademark punch sounds and Indy walks in and, you know, and, and that's how he enters the story. And he says, you know, I, I got to bail you out again. Give me back my hat, puts his hat on, and then we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it just gets there so much faster. And it would still put us with him and the main villain in the same space that much more quickly mm -hmm. instead of dawdling, if you will. And it, I'll say I, I liked it for the train sequence, but I could see both of your points where there are places that it does drag on a little bit and could definitely be trimmed. I think that there are scenes, like you said, Matt, with the noose, that that could have been way shorter for sure. And just the amount of different cars on the train that he's going through. <laughs> It just feels like to, to what end. So I get that. Yeah. Just start on the train and embrace yeah. it and go. Well, and I think, you know, we're, we're going to talk about obviously uh, this uh, elephant in the room, which is the fact that this whole sequence is done with Harrison Ford being de-aged. And I, I, I'm going to throw it out there. Chrissy, how do you feel like this works? Does it look good enough to be spending 25 minutes with this person being de-aged i will say it is the best de-aging i have seen yet um however i think that it was too long spent on it i think that that works best if it's a quick thing i couldn't say it better myself mm -hmm. this is the type of effect where if you give me too much time to stare at it i'm looking for the seams the best effects are the ones that don't give you a chance to pick them apart. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to, I mean, I'm, I'll say personally, I, I feel like it's some of the worst de-aging I've ever seen. And I feel like it's just some of the worst CGI I've ever seen. Um, just for the de-aging? Just for, the whole sequence does not look great in, in its VFX. Um, it's not good, I don't think, in that sense. I, and, and I think... I. I, I, you know, uh, go ahead. I, I just, you know, no, no, no. I, I like, I, I agree with you with like on the motorcycle, like, or on the car. That's where it really that it, it just, they, they got greedy and it just went too far. The first part where they pull off the hood or he's in the noose. I'm like, okay, I'm with you. I, I, I got it. 
But again, it's that whole, you get to the more movement that's involved, the more, the harder it is to map that quite right. I wondered if my theater had presentation issues because it felt dark and muddy at certain points visually. Uh, but either, either that or more than one theater is having projection issues because it, it really is when I see the ad on my, my television or my computer, it looks better than when I saw it in the theater. Hmm. So I'm very curious whether the effect looked really great on a smaller screen. And then when it gets put into the, the premium large format screen is where it breaks down because we all know that there's a, a breaking point for this sort of thing. I'm willing to bet that when I go and I revisit this on home release, cause I will, when I go and revisit this on home release, I'm willing to bet this looks better than on the large screen. Now this is a and good it point. absolutely could. I mean, I think that's a good point. And I, it, it's not me wanting to be harsh on the film because I come into this wanting to love it. Having, I mean, I like all the Indiana Jones movies, you know, I, I, even Temple of Doom, which is not my favorite, but I still like it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I want this to be good. I think, um, you know. It wasn't just the de-aging, but I mean, it's even the CGI of like him running on the train and all of that stuff. It looks mm-hmm. like, you know, I just saw, we talked about the Flash here and, and the very similar. Um, unfortunately, the, the CGI work is just not great. And it's weird because this movie cost upwards of almost $300 million. And I'm like, where did that money go? Because I'm not seeing it on screen much much of the time. Maybe uh, travel. <laughs> but even that, I mean, there's a lot really, of travel. You know, I, I just don't feel like they're traveling all that much. At least doesn't feel like it. So um, I don't know. I was just, you know, again, I think the opening is doing a what it needs to do in the sense of we want to introduce our villain. We want to introduce this MacGuffin. It's a clever way to be able to do it, you know, here at the waning moments of World War Two. Uh, and, you know, Indy gets to punch some Nazis. Everybody loves that. Right. And but I just felt like I think you said it, John. I think it's very apt uh, way of putting it. I feel like they just got greedy with the sequence and that if it had been judiciously trimmed down, I don't think almost any of these issues would have bothered me, right? Because I think, you know, if you're only working on seven to ten minutes of footage, you you can perfect that in a way that, you know, um, I I think we would have come out of it being like, man, that was great. But when you got 25 minutes of a film here where you're trying to do some of the hardest type of CGI work that you're, you know, of of making a person we all are completely familiar with look exactly like they did back in the day when they're 80 now. I mean, that's we're asking a lot of these people. And so when you're asking to do 25 minutes of that, plus all of the other effects work that this sequence, it, you know, contains. I mean, that's that's a that's a big ask, if you ask me. It's a big ask. I think that what doesn't help is the fact that the rest of the train sequence has issues, consistency issues. I I, I don't like saying, you know me, I, I don't like saying good or bad with visual effects. It's consistency. And I think that the reshoots and 
revisits and stuff like that, you wind up having to revisit certain things and it, it contributes to an inconsistency. And the goal, the, the funny thing is the gold standard has to do with another Harrison Ford uh, character in terms of train sequences. And that's solo a star Wars story. Harrison Ford might not have been playing him there, but that is the gold standard for the running on top of a train sequence. I still watch that to this day. I remember watching it in the theater in everything from Dolby to my TV to everything. And I still look at that thing. And I think there's a, a magical train going through the mountains with stormtroopers on it. And I'm like completely transported there. And I think the frustrating thing is that we feel whether it's justified or not, that that means that having people run on a real train on earth should be more believable to the eye or as believable to the eye as that thing. Maybe it's an unfair expectation because I don't know what to expect of a magic train floating through the mountains. And so I'm maybe I'm more visually forgiving of it. But I think that shot selection has a lot to do with it. I think that revisions and things like that and priority to the uh, the schedule. I think also the the production being stopped for for you know COVID protocols and then restarted and then Ford injuring himself and then changing things. I think you wind up having effects teams getting juggled around and getting reassigned and contracts expiring and stuff like that. So I feel even worse for the people who were brought in to work on this sequence or these sequences, and then they they hear people ragging on it, I know how I would feel inside. I'd be like, well, I, I only had two weeks. Mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to do the it's the best I could do, man. You know, like, it's got to be such a rough, rough thing. But I, I do. I think it's the production woes are, are what we're really seeing in play there. And I, I just wanted to add, as far as the, the de-aging, I think that it's more of what John was saying about the more time you spend focusing on it, the more time an audience has to pick it apart. Um, and I really think that here it looked better than they did with Carrie in Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. And they spent less time on her. I agree. I mean, like showing her. I I agree. Yeah. I agree. The mapping that they did with with Carrie Fisher in Rise of Skywalker does not match this level. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I don't want anybody to think that I'm not saying they didn't work hard and and they weren't trying to to do well. Uh, I don't think any of that's the case. Um, I think this comes down to and and John, you mentioned this, and I think this is really important. You know, the best visual effects movies in years are ones like Dune or anything that um, Christopher Nolan puts out, right? Why is that the case? It's because the director knows exactly what they want those sequences to look like. Absolutely 100% knows what those sequences are looking like in his head. And he can tell the visual effects team and they can start doing it from day one, right? Uh, As they get the footage. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is a place where too many directors have gotten too used to just handing it off to him and be like, make it look cool. You know, and, and when you have no idea what it is that the director wants it to look like, and I don't know if that's the case here, but I know that that's the case in Marvel. 
Uh, and that's why the, the shoddy work has happened there is because, again, VFX teams don't have enough time to do the work because things keep getting changed up until the last moment. And there's only, like you said, there's only so much you can do. Mm-hmm. And so if we want good VFX films uh, to be done, and, and again, Cameron is a great example of this uh, with Way of Water. Cameron knows exactly what he wants it to look like. Lucas knew exactly what he wanted Star Wars to look like. Um, you know, it, and when that's the case, you know, the effects look better. And so I, I think that's, you know, one of the biggest issues with the film. I think that that doubles back, though. You mentioned Lucas. Lucas was also, regardless of the film he was working on, there would come a point where Lucas would say, okay, good enough. We right. got it. Yep. We're, we're okay. Yes. We can move forward. But the reason he got away with it is because he didn't spend a lot of time. He could he would keep the story moving. And I think, again, what all three of us have pointed to is if you give an audience too much time with an effect, they will take it apart. Mm-hmm. The best effects are the ones where you don't give the audience the chance. And you do it through shot selection and editing. Yes. And you just keep it tight and you keep it moving. And the audience will just roll with it. They will just say, okay, that's what it is. They'll buy it and they'll keep moving and they'll rave about it. Like, you know, I mean, I know somebody who's extremely critical of Tarkin in Rogue One. Uh, I'm not critical of Tarkin in Rogue One in the same way that, that, that he is, but you know, his whole thing was like when Tarkin was in longer scenes was what where he had the problem. Mm-hmm. When Tarkin was in quick shots, he didn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's because he had the time to sit there and like stare at the neckline and stuff yeah. like that. And be like, oh, look, that's it's like, well, you're not supposed to be staring at that. Right. But, yeah. you know. So you might say if George was more hands on with this one, he would have said, make it ma- faster and more intense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I think he would have used words to that effect, probably, he, you know. Yeah, even Stephen yeah. probably would have said something like that, too. I mean, you know, it, it, Stephen knows exactly. I, I think it's the judiciousness of time in the Indiana Jones movies. Um, and, and maybe it part of this is this movie is just too long anyway. Indiana Jones movies are about mm-hmm. to be, are supposed to be around two hours. This movie way exceeds that. And I think there's no reason for it. Um, and with 25 and, minutes of that extra time being exactly, at the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm, but I think mm-hmm. one of the things this movie does the best is bringing us the old hero and acknowledging his age uh, and making that a point of the story. We're weaving in the 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 pain that of loss that you go through as you get older. Um, and I, I think that this movie does a very good job of, you know, if we're going to bring Indiana Jones back, they did the same thing in kingdom of the crystal skull. We had to acknowledge the time had passed that Indy's older, but here obviously he's much older than that now. And we're going to make that a part of the story. And and when it comes to the idea of bringing these aging heroes back, I think this might be actually the best version of that. Um, because what Indiana Jones is struggling with is that the world, you know, has changed around him. Nobody cares about the things that he does anymore. 
Nobody seems to care about history, learning its lessons. They all kind of seem intent on the future or complaining about the now. I mean, and he feels like he has nothing to give anymore. His son has died. He can't help his wife get past her grief. He feels pointless and useless now, as if he has no place in this world. You know, and, and um, Voller, the, the villain, even says, you know, this time has no place for men like us. And that's exactly who what Indiana Jones feels like. And, and so this whole movie is about finding him finding a way through that, but also other people reminding him that he does still have value. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk about what you talked about earlier, you know, or, or, or through this, but that one line has stuck with me where he says, you know, there time for, for men like us, you know, what Voller says, it always bothered me that the response wasn't something more along the lines of, you mean history doesn't have a place for people like you? Where Andy calls out, don't lump me in with you, mm-hmm. right? And maybe that could be a catalyst for Indy to say, wait a minute. It's people like Voller that are screwing things up. It's not people like me, but everybody thinks the two of us are the same. That would have been a very important moment, I think, for the hero to distinguish, to say, we're not the same. I didn't get that from my viewing. And I think that's a missed opportunity. And I agree with that. But I think that one of the things that the movie, and, and I, I think you're absolutely right, this should have been more fleshed out. This is actually where you would sort of spent more time, which is, is this thematic element. But I think the reason Indy doesn't say that at this point is because he is kind of cynical about his own time. Because what have we seen through the film? The United States government, which he's been so involved with, uh, has now been using a Nazi scientist to get us to the moon. Well, and, which is and, yeah, you know, again, I understand that. But I mean, but I, I think he's in a place where he's feeling completely disillusioned and cynical about everything. And that's the reason he can't say that at that moment. So I agree with you that that should be a like, I wish the movie had actually given us the opportunity to actually really get to that moment so that when he does say that he is able to say no this you know and and that's where i think the movie misses a really good opportunity to give us something truly special because there is a difference between indiana jones and voller there is a difference between what he's offering the world and what voller's trying to offer the world and I think that is something that is worth digging more into. So again, if you take if you want to spend more time on this film, yeah, take time away from the beginning and allow this theme to percolate more so we have the moment you just called out, John. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that that's what's frustrating is when when you come at it and it, it can always feel like, you know, you're sort of like armchair rewriting, but that's what that gets to is while I acknowledge everything you're saying about Indy's frustrations, there are so many things that bother me about how he's gotten there or how they address how he's gotten there because they give us Marion back in the last film to take her away in this one off screen. 
And then I'll go ahead and say it. They do mutt dirty by just saying, you know, basically they poochie him from, you know, from The Simpsons. If anybody's familiar with Poochie, is a character that Itchy and Scratchy introduced, voiced by Homer. Everybody hates Poochie. And then uh, Homer in the recording studio records this really moving speech about how sometimes you have to be accepting of change in, in your characters and stuff like that. And everybody gives them an applause and everything like that. And then they air the episode. And then all of a sudden, you know, Homer's, you know, Poochie is talking and then you hear somebody else's voice go, but I have to go home now. And then you see this crudely drawn animation that says, but then Poochie got killed on the way back to his planet. So the way they treat Mutt in this and dismissively, they're just like, uh, yeah, he died. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I consider it a cheat. I consider it a cheap cave-in to the people who, quote-unquote, hated the character from 2008. Um, but, you know, that that's me. I mean, Christy, you, you said you watched back then. You don't really remember everything. I mean, did the line about Mutt's death hit you in any way? Was it impactful? I mean, for me, it was impactful in a, in a different way of feeling like he needed another reason to be trying to redeem himself. That he's been through something more than just feeling lost and, you know, not having a place in this world anymore. But it's also because he's had a tremendous loss and that then caused a wake in his marriage. So I felt like it was justified because it leads to all of these other things for him that make things better eventually. Um, so I just wasn't as attached to Mutt as a character. And, and I felt like that was okay. But I could see where you're coming from. I think on that, you know, I, I see where you are, John, and I kind of see where Christy is coming from. And the thing that I wasn't as frustrated with it as you was because if you were going to create this rift between him and Marion, this was the way to do it that felt legitimate because, you know, having known people who have lost a child... The struggle is very real for those parents on how to stay connected to one another. And many of them do end in divorce. And so I, I thought that that was great because in the sense that it also allows then the character of Helena and her sidekick to be able to remind Indy that there are still people who need him. There are still people that he can be a father figure to, even if he's not actually their father. Um, and that's where I felt like the film ameliorated some of my feelings about that, even though like you, I, I would have rather Mutt have maybe just still been alive, but off screen, right? But but see, I, I'm not even saying, like, I think probably what bothers me the most is that they made it tie into the Vietnam War, which presents its own timeline issues, as it were. But additionally, I would have probably gone along with it more 
if we had had a situation where you find out that Mutt died on an adventure that he followed his old, he was trying to follow in his dad's footsteps and he died on that adventure. That would, for me, it's not like, oh, he enlisted to piss off his dad. It would have hit me harder if it had been like, yeah, he was out there with me. I misjudged a, a jump. He didn't make it. And Marion's not going to forgive me for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that feels more like, oh yeah, that's a gut punch. That that one I probably wouldn't have mm-hmm. been bothered by Mutt's death. Yep. As strange as it, that's a terrible way to phrase no, I understand. it. Granted, but it feels like it would have been more natural to the the character in the arc. Mm-hmm. I think that's legitimate. I I I think, and again, like you said, we're not trying to armchair quarterback, but I do think that that's actually a better way of introducing this issue because I think it also makes. Marion's grief seem more understandable in the sense of why she would be angry and unconsolable by Indy, right? Because it's his lifestyle that got Mutt killed, right? And so there is this anger and then therefore this need of forgiveness that comes in, which again, I think is just very powerful. Um, I will say, though, the idea of creating this old hero who's disillusioned and by the end finds not necessarily redemption, but is shown that he is still needed and wanted and important to the world because of who he is and what he offers um, relationally. I thought that was really key. Uh, and I really appreciated that about the film. You know, I, th- I think not enough films these days actually celebrate these older characters in that way in saying that, no, they sh- they're still legitimate, right? Uh, and so the importance of Indy being somebody who cares about history, wanting to learn its lessons, I mean, you know... Watching him be in that classroom and the complete difference from, you know, when he was teaching back in the day to now where, you know, you, you the the lethargy and the lack of, like, care about anything other than, like, what's cool and hip and happening is just a reminder of, of what Indiana Jones has been trying to get to, especially since the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where... You know, you have this character who's really learned the lessons and is able to then use those lessons to save him and his family from death. You know, I just, I, there's something about that. Indiana Jones is a reminder that the importance of history and those that have lived it are important. And it's important mm-hmm. for us to understand them and know them so that we can learn from them. And only caring about the here and now gets us into trouble, you know? Um, only caring about the here and now gets us to a place where, you know, Indy is seeing the what the American government is doing now and feeling very uncomfortable with the less black and white and so much gray that he doesn't know who's good and who's bad, right? Mm-hmm. And and I just, again, I think this is, I completely agree with you, John. These are the themes where this movie, if we're, like, this is why you come back to do this movie is to really dig in this thematic milieu. And I just wish they had spent more time digging into this 
than, you know, maybe doing a chase sequence every five seconds, you know, because this is the stuff that really makes bringing Indiana Jones back feel legitimate, you know, because that's what you're dealing with at the end of life, right? Mm -hmm. Those questions of what did I do for the world? Am, you know, am I important? Did I do anything worthwhile? And, but too, when you've lived that long too, you're like, does it matter that I'm even here anymore? Do people care? Like, do I have a purpose anymore at this point? I think, you know, I, all that's great. I I get that. I think that the movie doesn't successfully communicate these things. I think that you can get there, but a hallmark of what I think has made Indiana Jones movies work so well up to this point is that ruthlessly efficient storytelling. And I think we I think that the runtime is what muddies this because you go down so many rabbit holes, you are left every so often saying, wait, what was the point again? Okay. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. We're getting back to that now. Um, I think it also was a misstep to tie it specifically to the parade in New York for the astronauts coming home. That was... I get what they were doing because of what it tied into, but that chase felt it, it just didn't, it just didn't work for me. It didn't work for me on a lot of levels, not the least of which being Indiana Jones is supposed to be something that occurred on the margins of what was, what was possibly happening, happening when the TV camera wasn't pointed that way. Whereas if you set it in a ticker tape parade, during a supposedly real event in New York City in 1969 that all of these cameras are on, it instantly breaks the illusion for me because I say to myself, there's no way the world... Like, yeah, what? No, it's not. What are you talking about? There's no way that this wouldn't have been a bigger deal. This wouldn't have been in history books and everything. Like Indiana Jones is supposed to be in the margins where the textbooks don't cover that area. Whereas this would have been a real historical event that everybody would have talked about, whether we're inventing this parade or not or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just, it felt like they, they didn't stay outside the lines enough with that chase. So, mm -hmm. well, and you know, I will, um, go back a little to, you know, when we, we were talking about him being the old hero and everything, I think that that still for me is, the best part about the movie because they also then call back to it later with moments to show his importance over and over again. So although I think that it gets a little muddy with the storytelling, like you were saying, John, I think that I still feel this overarching feeling of it being a love letter to Indy and not like they're trying to hurry up and wrap him up and move on to someone new. Um, I mm. think that it's about honoring the character and also showing that people still have value no matter their age. Um, because he's the one that later in the film says, you forgot about continental drift. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like he constantly needs Helena to come in and 
tell him what the right answer is or, you know, the joke back and forth about rescuing each other. Um, it's showing that he still has that practical knowledge along with his book knowledge that other people didn't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. just to kind of wrap this up, I think, and and bring it to where we go in the end, you know, where he wants to stay because he doesn't feel like he has any value anymore. He's not needed there. And at least by staying in the past, he can live his dream of actually experiencing history, not just mm-hmm. studying it in the dirt. And I found the scene where Helena is, you know, talking to Archimedes and telling him that, you know, he's smart and wonderful and great inventor, but like he, she's explaining who Indy is to her and what he means to her and the fact that losing her would basically break her because she doesn't have anything left. And I found that to be an incredibly moving scene. Um, And then I, I think we can talk about it, too, because it ties into the fact that this movie, if it hadn't ended with Marion showing back up, like, I would have hated this film. But her showing up added the weight to what Helena had said and her coming back to be with him i mean i was personally i i had tears in my eyes at the end of this film with that i found it incredibly moving and like you said christy to say that people that are older still have an immense amount of value to our world um is something that we just don't get in films very often these days we celebrate what's young and hip and happening and we forget that the knowledge and wisdom that comes with age cannot be bought, you know? And uh, I, I was just incredibly moved at the end of the film because of that. And so whatever, you know, issues I may have had here or there, that moment together with, with what Helena said and then Marion coming back, I was 100% won over. I was like, nope, this is great. And this is where I'm the cold, heartless bastard that everybody hates. <laughs> and we know, but it's fine. I wouldn't have stranded Indy in the past. I wouldn't have shown him getting to the past. If you came to me and you say, we got to rewrite this ending, because we know that they had to redo the ending. And I suspect Marion coming back was a product of that redoing the ending. I have no idea. That's just what I'm extrapolating from behind the scenes stuff that I know. Doesn't matter one way or the other. Do I like the ending? Yes. I think that... They pull out of it at the end and have him resolve with Marion. It makes me happy. I think it's played really well, too. I think that that Harrison Ford uh, and Karen Allen have a natural on-screen chemistry, even in one scene, that should be envied by actors and actresses everywhere because it's just a very easy chemistry between the two of them. To this day, who would have who thought it back in 1981? Yeah. You know. But... To play into that whole concept of the the hero meaning something, the hero sacrificing, the hero doing what's necessary. If you had come to me and you said, we need to rewrite this, I would have had him 
talk about continental drift. I would have had him say, you've actually doomed us all. I would have had him eventually gotten uh, Helena out of the plane. And I would have had the plane go into the rift and the rift close. And then be left with the question, what happened? Did he make it? Did he die? Did the adventure continue? Is the adventure over? And have the people sitting around and bring Marion back then and have her say, confess something like, I never stopped loving him. I, I wish I'd found... And so you can have a poignant message there about how you need to forgive because you don't know how much time somebody has left. And then do something cutesy at the end, like they're together, they're at his graves or something like that. And then out of nowhere, his hat blows across and somebody looks down and has just like that beat... Maybe even make it Sala has that beat where he looks down and he picks up the hat. He has this look on his face like, nah. And you end the movie there. Yeah, I wouldn't hate like, it. That's, that's the ending. I, nope. That's the ending. Nope. Rivalry. Nope. Right. Nope. Nope. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. Again, I'm not trying to play armchair. I What I'm saying is I don't. I think that having him actually go through to the past asked too much of me as an audience member. Sure. And that's why I'm sure. sitting there like sort of yeah. like backing it out. Yeah. It just asked too much mm-hmm. of me um, for no other reason than the runtime. When they went through the rift, I hit the point of, oh, wow. Okay. This is all right. This is still going. Yeah. I, I just, it was just, it had gone on long yeah. enough by that point and I was, I was done. I was finished. And while it's not a bad ending by any stretch, it's a good ending. Mm-hmm. It just took so long to get there yeah. that I just wasn't in it christy that's a great question for you about the end you know and and with the time travel the fact that we really do go back to the past to the battle of syracuse i mean how how did you feel about all of that so um i wouldn't have rewritten it like john said but i do agree with the point that um i didn't actually like them going through the rift and going back in time I think that the build up to it was awesome. Um, and I think that definitely the mm-hmm. moment with um, Mickelson realizing his mistake was awesome. Um, but I think that it does in actually doing that in the movie um, almost kind of take away from what Indiana Jones movies have always been. And it's it's not about the actual thing that they've been warning about you know what i mean like indy's not going to be the one that opens the arc um kind of thing and so i feel like it would have been better if at the last second they dodged it because they were too afraid that they were going to the wrong time and then rewrite it somehow otherwise from there um but i definitely am with you matt on having um his wife back and having that scene in the kitchen, I think, gave so much depth to it. Um, not that I didn't think it was not there before that, but that that puts a great cap on the end. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the the time travel, to me, was like you're stepping into a whole different movie. I'm going to split the difference between you both in the sense that <laughs> I don't I don't have a problem with them actually going back in time. But I think like the beginning, it's too long. Mm-hmm. There's too much time spent there. I really so think beers. Yeah, I think you could have legitimately <laughs> had this be a five minute scene 
and do the exact same things that you do and focus on what's important, which is that conversation between Helena and Archimedes and Indy, right? That's the important aspect of this because it's the thematic element. It's the, it's the story of the character. And so you could really cut down all of them flying by things and Nazis shooting Romans and pair this down to what's essential. And I think it's a much better sequence. And I think it works 100% better. You know, um, it it's akin to, you know, I, I think John... A lot of people have a problem with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and having interdimensional aliens and everything at the end. And to me, this is on that same level of type of like out there type crazy, right? But I think it's better if we focus on what's important, which means it could be, again, you could spend maybe five to seven minutes in this sequence instead of, I feel like, I don't maybe I'm wrong, but it felt like this sequence was like 10 to, it almost like 15 minutes it felt like. In length, it's probably not that long, but it feels long, right? Next time I see it, I'll time it for you. Yeah. (laughs) It felt longer than that to me, honestly. Yeah, see? And that is is probably why my impulse is to have it be Indy sacrifices himself. Did he go? Did he not? And I think it's more fun to have that debate with uh, everybody saying like, well, what are they saying? Did he make it? Did he not make it? And then you have that sort of like little thing that people can debate about the Mm -hmm. movie uh, at the end of it. Um, Do I rank it with interdimensional beings? I'm going to be honest, and I know this is where I become a heretic, but I, I, dig inter- I dig the whole chariots of the gods interdimensional beings thing more than time travel because of the fact that I just dig those sorts of conspiracy theory things about sure. aliens built oh, the pyramids yeah. and stuff. That's yeah. just more fun yeah. to mm-hmm. me. I get it. Yeah. Um, but, in you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and debate, like you said, we've opened the Ark of the Covenant. We've had the Shankara stones. We've had uh, the the cup of Christ restore life and take it away. We've had, you know, interdimensional aliens. And I'm not sitting here saying, oh, you can't go back in time. That's not a fair thing to do. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, by the time I got there, I was like, you know, there's a cleaner way to, like, bring this through. Probably I would have had less problem with it if we'd gotten there faster. Yeah. yeah. And it was like an hour and 50, we got there. I'd probably be like, okay, good, good. Yeah. We, this is the wrap up point. I like this. Yeah. The last reel's coming yeah. together. No, that, yeah. actually, that's a good point. It feels like you're starting a whole nother act. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, get yeah, what I you're agree. Saying. Yeah. I think, no. And in that, I think it's interesting because we've all talked ourselves into the same place, right? Like, it's like, you know, if we just got there faster, I, I think this would be better. And I think that's where our comments Mm -hmm. about the beginning of the movie, if you do that much uh, tighter, then this feels better. Because in the end, too, that's not the emotional core of the film. This is. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to feel Mm -hmm. like this is the place where you're like, really? Really? We're going to go? We're going to do this now? Because we want to feel like we're in the moment when those emotions are happening and and instead it it i think you know it kind of seems like we're all like checking our watches you know instead and and that's not where you want to be which 
I have another big thing about this film that, and it's bothered me since the trailers. And it was actually in the film. And so this idea about belief has been such a huge key Indiana Mm. Jones theme, right? Indy says to Helena, I don't believe in magic, Wombat, but a few times in my life I've seen things. Things I can't explain. And I've come to believe it's not so much about what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. And I have a really hard time with this quote because... Indy has actually seen things. And in The Last Crusade, he's asked by Donovan, it's time to ask yourselves what you truly believe. And then in The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, he knows enough and he believes enough to know when not to ask any more questions and get out of Dodge. And what also doesn't make sense is that he's fighting literal Nazis. So of course it matters what you believe because it drives you to do the very things you do and how you act. And so like in the end, like isn't this about what he's trying to teach Helena the whole movie that it's not really all about money. It's not about fortune and glory. It's about the relationships we have with one another and throughout history and the here and now. And I, you know, I kind of get that Indy's become cynical with the world that he's living in and no one seems to really believe in anything bigger anymore than themselves. But this line to me just doesn't ring true at this point for this character, even with his cynicism. And that's exactly you said the words that would have made that line resolve itself better. Um, because basically what it is, is it's clumsy writing. And what he should be saying is, even if he says it doesn't matter what you believe, it matters that you believe something. You believe in something good. You believe in something true. That is a heroic statement. It's too cynical in that moment. Even revisit the line. Have him say that version of the line first, and then later say, I was wrong. It does matter that you believe in something basically have it be a bridge where you save that line there and then you revisit it later. That works as well. Have him come back to it and say, I, I, I was wrong and I was, uh, I was hurt. And that's why I thought the wrong thing back then. And, and all of those sorts of things. So I completely get what you're saying. I will actually throw the dark Knight rises under the bus is that it is, it feels to me like writers on a deadline sitting there and it's it's the same sort of land flat moment as you know so you came back to die with your shit eh? no i came to stop you it's like oh well that wasn't as witty as you think it was there bruce but <laughs> go on and fight that's fine we'll keep moving um so yeah i i think that, that i think that it could have been very easily resolved i think they were trying to say what you just said i think that they just didn't get there mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. And I I will say it really didn't stand out to me, I guess, the way that it obviously landed for you, Matt. Um, but I do think it's clumsy writing. I think that it was clearly somebody trying to write some inspirational quote for him to say. And then it came out like this, where, you know, just that wah-wah moment <laughs> of uh, that's not what Indy would do. I, I yeah. think it's... The writers trying to be cool 
and say something that sounds like, you know, hip. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the problem is, is that the movie really is about the idea of belief versus Voller's idea that there's only cold, hard science. And that what you believe in matters. Exactly. Because Voller Mm -hmm. is all about this idea that it's cold, hard mathematics. It's not about anything else. And Indy has become a person who went from being a person that's all about just as Helena was. It's about the money. It's about fortune and glory. And slowly he's become a man who has learned that it really is more about something much bigger than myself. And it's it's there is almost this religious idea to that, right? I mean, it, India has always been after religious artifacts for the first three films, and and the, you know these last two not really so much, but those ideas have kind of permeated everything that's happened in his life. And I, I think you're absolutely right, John. This movie needed to revisit that theme by the end. Because I do think that Andy, to rephrase that at the end, of it is about what you believe. Because what you believe matters because that, you know, creates action. And those actions are either good or bad. And they have consequences. And that whole movie is really about that, right? I mean, we do see that in the mm-hmm. film because the actions that Voller takes are terrible and awful. And he's tra- trying to rewrite history for the, the benefit of, of the Third Reich, which we all like legitimately is the only thing that in the entire world that almost everybody can agree on is absolutely evil, right? Oh, yeah, it was a bad idea. Uh, Yes. I'm just saying it's the one thing that everybody can actually agree on, like, is evil, Uh, you know? Nazis are bad. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody can check off that box. Oh, yeah. That's not (laughs) Mm -hmm. a good thing. I I think that they also missed an opportunity to tie in Voller's uh, whole – it would have been very interesting to tie in Voller's quest for the dial – and what the dial did, and you find out that basically he engineered the space program he thought maybe he could punch through that way, and he was frustrated because he was like, "Hey, we landed on the moon," and he's like, "I thought it was up on the moon," and they're like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Nothing. Don't worry about it." Like, and you find out that like his whole reason for working behind the scenes was he thought he could math his way yes. into yes. what Archimedes yes. did, and it's it's what makes his character sort of a dud for me. As much as I enjoy Mads Mikkelsen, as much as I think he's a, a you know a great actor, I'm never quite clear on Voller. I don't really have an emotional reaction. Like Belloc, that's a terrific villain. Mola Rom's a terrific villain because that is he's straight up awesome. Um, and you have uh, rightly, I think, in Last Crusade, you have. Uh, you know, uh, 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 you have the villain sort of take a back seat to the the father son thing. Like the the Nazis are there, but they're not as much. You know, there's no Belloc really, mm-hmm. right? In Last Crusade, so that you can keep your focus right. on Indy and his dad. In Crystal Skull, there's a villain, but she's even, and this is even one of the criticisms you could have of Crystal Skull is there's a lot going on aside from her, mm-hmm. but she's still interesting. Right. I just wish she was fleshed out a little bit more. Whereas this guy, I'm like, yeah, what, what, 
Like, what's his bag? I haven't spent enough time with it. It's two and a half hours, and I still feel like I didn't spend enough time with the villain to get to know him mm-hmm. well. Whereas Belloc, in a shorter film with fewer scenes, I'm like, I know who Belloc is. I get him. I understand him. I have a reaction to him. And I'll say so. I pinpointed for myself at least exactly the problem here. They spend too much time on his goons and not enough on him. Yes. They bring them in first Absolutely. before they even show him again yep. in the current time. So, yeah, I think that was the yep. biggest mistake with him. I, I think both of you have nailed it. Um, I, I think the script is so worried about doing all of these other things that it hasn't figured out what its own non-negotiables are. Mm-hmm. It hasn't figured out what it is that, okay, w- what are we trying to do with this film? And so, you know, I, I think that the big one is what we kind of mentioned earlier is the old hero. That's the first part of the story. And everything that revolves around that is what makes this story work. Everything else has to service that story. Even our villain. And I think like you said, John, we don't do a good enough job of tying him into our main thematic element that actually makes him feel important. Um, because Last Crusade does that. I think even uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, come at me, bro, but I think it does a phenomenal job of doing that because it really ties into the thematic growth of the character of Indiana Jones from being somebody who would continue to ask questions but know when questions should stop being asked and you get out of town. Um, This one, we just don't do that, and I think you're absolutely right, Christy. We're spending too much time with the goons. And honestly, too, we're just killing so many people in this film that I'm I'm left a little bit frustrated with that because it's like Indiana Jones films weren't known for everyone dying every five seconds. And like they just straight up shoot people all the time, which I guess maybe fits more in line with, you know, 1960s, early 70s film right? Where a lot more people die. But maybe that's another issue I have with this film is that I can't quite tell what they're trying to mimic. You know, the sec- the fourth film is all about mimicking instead of the serial, it's all about mimicking the B film, the sci-fi B film. What is this trying to mimic? I think that it is caught between its initial formation and the desire to remake it as a James Bond movie. Because James Bond, as we all know, is the inspiration point for Indiana Jones. And as I spent time, like, sort of like going over the movie in my head after seeing it, what really struck me, and I, I'm willing to bet this is Waller Bridges' influence, having worked on No Time to Die, this plays more like a Bond film than the other ones do. And... If that's intentional, if it's unintentional, it's what leads, I think, to some of the storytelling confusion. It's because I think there are elements that are trying to be an Indiana Jones storytelling style, and then there are elements that are trying to be a long-form James Bond storytelling style. And while one is influenced by the other, one is descended from the other, they're not the same thing. And that's why a lot of when people have been asking me a lot about the movie, 
and asking for my opinion. I was, I'm always very guarded, at, but I come back to, I say, this is like, I'm trying to look at it from not just is this an Indiana Jones movie, but as a movie. If I'd never seen an Indiana Jones movie before, what would this movie strike me as? And the thing I kept walking away from was James Bond or possibly Mission Impossible. Like one of those two. Mm -hmm. and But James Bond more so. Yeah, I would say for me, the other thing that kind of makes it feel like it leans toward, toward a Bond film was the inclusion of the character of Mason the uh the black agent that's trying to get Voller to the president um her storyline just felt inconsistent with the other characters and the rest of the story going on and then also her attire she was much more costumed for the era than the others were so it, they just yes. didn't jive together I think that might have been on purpose to show that like these are men of a bygone era, the 1940s, 50s era, and she was a modern character, Maybe. quote unquote, for 1969. But to your point, if I'm sitting there staring at the costumes saying, well, I think that's what that means. It, that's You're putting too much lift on the costuming at that point. Right. Like that's, you know. Blend a little bit uh, more. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, maybe it's just too much, uh, uh, you know, henchman bloat, uh, as it were. Yeah. Because there was the one, there was the one henchman that Fowler had, where I'm pretty sure was CG enhanced. The the big hulking guy that eventually dies underwater. Yeah, that was weird. Um, like there were certain shots where like it looked like an actor. And then there were other shots where I would look at the hand and I was like, that looks like the Hulk's hand or he like they'd show an overhead shot. And I was like, that looks like that looks like Bruce Banner starting to Hulk out. Like, what am I missing here? Like, what's wrong? What is missing? What am I not seeing? What's not lining up here? Um, it really seems like a CG enhanced actor. Um, I was going to say he got and then enhanced. We're all, yeah. <laughs> Well, we're all going to find out that this was actually a pure CG character. And so I'm like, well, half the time it's a completely photorealistic <laughs> success. And the other half of the time, not. So Yeah, no, I, I think all of that is, is really well said. And, and I think that this is the reason that this film, you know, misses George and Steven, especially George being involved is that these movies are meant to mimic a specific type of filmmaking. And George knew that specifically in every version. And Stephen did as well. And they were steeped in these films, right? So it was very easy for them to be able to do so. This film does not have that and therefore I think misses something, which I do want to ask you, um, I, you know, there's a couple of, of characters involved here that I think are really important to the story uh, in our cast with uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Ethan Isdor. 
how do you feel that these characters work, especially the character of Helena Shaw, who is the co-lead of the film, really, in many ways, uh, and a big part of the story? And does she work for you? Or does she not work you? I'm really interested to hear what you guys think. Well, I will definitely say I am a fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, have been since Solo. Um, and I think that she as an actress is really capable of showing the depth between um, being cold-hearted and trying to be all about the, you know, the next thing she can win or steal or get, you know, for herself and then also showing those really emotional moments where she's going back to being that little girl that looks up to her godfather. Um, and so I think that she was a good choice for this role. And I think, too, that the, the character is very interesting. And like you said, Matt, felt like she's like this surrogate child in the place of this void that Indy is feeling losing his son. And then having her also have the sidekick with Teddy and kind of her now having sort of a son-like figure makes it even more heartwarming for me about being like a family story. About family also can be found family and not necessarily biological. So uh, I thought that she was great. Um, and I think that the big thing that a lot of people were worried about that I feel like they... Um, did a good job of not doing was replacing Indy um, and not replacing him with her. She has agency, but also doesn't take away from Indiana Jones. Yes. But I think that Phoebe Waller-Bridge as an actress, while she's a fine actress, while she is a a, a good actress... Um, there is a thing to be said for what one would call screen presence. And I think that she is bringing her a game, but it is noticeable when she's on screen against somebody like Ford who just has an easy screen presence. Um, now, part of that, I'm sure, is just, you know, the, the history of Harrison Ford and stuff like that. But even Mads Mikkelsen, there are, there are actors and actresses when they come on screen, they just, it, it, they, they have a certain charisma that's very natural and very, um, you know, it, it puts them in this sort of, uh, you are very, you believe them very easily because they exude a, a type of charisma that comes through. And I think for Waller Bridge, she has that sort of charisma, but I don't get it here in some of her scenes. The chase scene feels awkward. Is it her fault? No. I will always lay, lay it at the feet of the director. The director is supposed to giving, be giving the actor what the actor needs to convey in the moment. I think that um, there are moments where she absolutely does shine. The, the Archimedes discussion, we, we've talked about this, you know, she absolutely shines in that moment, but there's not that consistent pulse to her 
and that is not me being dismissive. Like I'm saying, I I like Phoebe Waller-Bridge as an actress. I think she does have screen presence. I think that she's not given all of the necessary advantages that the character deserves. I know, I know that's an awkward way to state it. But for instance, when they're on the boat and she's got the stick of dynamite, it doesn't play smoothly and it undercuts her performance. And I don't know if it's that they were boxed in and they couldn't figure out how to show what was going on without detracting. But it struck me that she's there in that scene and just the the way that it flows undercuts her. I think just previous to that, when they go on the dive, I think that she's undercut by, I think everybody in that scene is undercut by just murkiness and it's just not clear where they are and what's going on sort of thing. So I think that, I think that Waller Bridge's performance would have benefited from, uh, you know, just tighter editing of the story to give her more of an opportunity to like basically have more percentage of the screen time as it were. Because again, that first 25 minutes is all Harrison Ford. And then she's sort of, she's there and then she's got to compete with him. And then we bring in Sala and we bring in a flashback and we bring in. And so I don't think she's ever given the opportunity to establish the type of presence she can on screen in this. And again, that gets back to runtime. That gets back to certain selections. I think having the, the the flashback was a mistake because it pulls us away from her, from Phoebe Waller Bridge in specific. Um, and so I think this, the structure of the film works against her. It's a testament to her that there are still scenes where she really shines and really, I'm like, wow, okay, wow, look at that. She's you know she she has me she's helena i'm i'm with her sort of thing um so i think in a sense as frustrating as frustrating as it is at points it is her her skill that enables her to have some really strong scenes uh throughout the film i think that i like her for the most part to me there were just some places where there's some little quips and everything that weren't necessary. Like, you know, she's uh, quipping about the, the guy putting on a suit. And there's a couple moments like that where it's just like mm, we're, we're trying to be clever and cute. But I feel like they they actually do take away from her character. I think we've already we don't need to accentuate the, the fact that she's kind of roguish and basically Indiana Jones from the Temple of Doom. That's who she is in this film. She's obsessed mm-hmm. with fortune and glory. Mm-hmm. And and this whole film is really about her bringing back Indiana Jones by reminding that him that he still is necessary and important, but also bringing her to a place where, she, where by the time the film ends, she's basically him maybe somewhere between Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade. That's what this film about is about. And I think that's the thing that you're, again, kind of missing the point. We're kind of missing what the actual thematic driving point of the this film is. And again, I, I think she, 
thankfully wins me over in the sense that her scene there at the end is so moving and so powerful and so wonderfully done and ties in with everything we do with Marion at the end that I, I love it. But I think you're, you're kind of right, John, that they're just, it's the pace of the film sometimes and the editing of the film sometimes that doesn't allow her to be as successful as I think she could have been with ju- even honestly, just some editing. I, I, I think the the way I will, I will state it, and I know I went on for a bit, but just to say it is her character arc is in a staccato fashion. To your point, Matt, about the, the quips and everything, that doesn't really fit right here. You know, where, where she's making sort of like lecherous comments about the guy. Because Indy didn't do that. You know, like it, it's one of those things where it's like the, the lecherous comment thing is not really a a thing here. But I think that she has a character arc, but then there are these moments where it's like it it's almost like she she freezes or she regresses for a scene because that's what the scene needs and not what her character needs. And I think that speaks to sort of like those those storytelling um, editing decisions that that fall a little flat. We've touched on the effects, right? But I wanted to just ask you quickly about the action. Because obviously Indiana Jones movies are action movies, uh, and they're known for their set pieces. Uh, you know, you think all the way back to Raiders and the the truck sequence and dragging under the truck and everything like that. Um, so how did you feel like the action in this movie did? You know, John, you mentioned, of course, uh, the big ticker tape parade chase. I mean... The, I've kind of mentioned before, this movie is rife with chase sequences. It feels like there's one every five minutes. Um, and that's actually not too much of an exaggeration, I don't think. So I, how does the action in this film work for you guys? So I, I felt that it could have been better, but there were a couple of scenes that were cool. I, I thought that the car chase was actually the best action sequence of the movie. Um, I enjoyed the train chase, but I did feel that it was too long um, and some of the effects could have been better. Um, And I really think that everything under the water was kind of unnecessary. That in particular, it's like it was mostly about the eels. They didn't really get to show anyone's faces because they're covered with gear and they're underwater. Um, and, And then one of them gets killed when they get back on the boat. So... Yeah, I think that overall it's uh it could have been better, but it wasn't the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> I felt the action was a little disappointing, to be honest. I thought that the Christy, you're absolutely right, the underwater scene was like, eh, yeah, I'm not really feeling tension here. I'm just feeling like it's necessary and it's like, eh. That's the antithesis of an Indiana Jones action sequence. I thought the chase of the ticker tape parade was okay. Um, I think that the the car the 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 little chase through the streets with the little three person car thing was messy, messier than I'm used to. And I think again, that's where I feel the absence of Lucas and Spielberg most keenly is all of the Indiana Jones chases are very disciplined up to this point in the sense that I know where I am. I know what's happening. 
I feel like I could draw a map of everything they went through. Even Temple of Doom's ludicrous little minecart chase. I feel like I could draw that in my head as to like what track they took and where it was. The car chase through the narrow streets, I don't feel that same sort of clarity. I don't feel the clarity that I'm looking for in the motorcycle sequence up to the train, which is probably why in my brain I'm like, just start at the train. Mm -hmm. Um, So the toughest part is then taking it out of the Indiana Jones context and saying, as unfair as it might seem, Mission Impossible is, you know, Dead Reckoning Part 1 is coming out. And I think, I can't help but think of Mission Impossible Fallout. There are some chase sequences in that that are absolute gold standards of the last 10 years. Where while I was watching them in the theater, I could see everything perfectly clearly. I had my hands on the side of my head or gripping my chair going, what is happening right now? Oh my God, this is amazing. I didn't have any sequences like that here. Mm. I didn't feel that same sort of thrill. And so in a sense, as sad as it is to say, it feels like it underscores the fact that fictional Indiana Jones has seen the world pass by him. And it feels like now more than ever that the film world has passed Indiana Jones as a franchise because he comes with his own big $350 million action movie. And I don't have any chase sequences that I'm coming out talking about. Yeah, but did you see that thing? I'm missing that. Yeah. Did you see that thing vibe from this? So that's where I landed. I pinpoint this, uh, John, you mentioned the idea that we're uh, mimicking James Bond. And of course that was the whole point of this is, you know, George telling Steven, I got something better. And one of the things that any Jones movies were known for uh, were their practical effects and their practical stunts, just like the the James Bond movies were, right? Uh, all the way till Die Another Day, which we will not speak of. Um, and yeah. you made a name up. That's not a. Yeah. That's not a James Bond movie, is it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Maybe and probably I'm just yes. making that up. You're talking crazy. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking so, about. And, you know, even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you have that big chase sequence at the beginning of the film with Mutt, and that's all very practical, right? Um, it feels very practical. It feels visceral because it feels real. Nothing in this movie, action-wise, feels real, regardless of whether it is or not. Just the way it's shot and the way everything's done, it feels artificial. And therefore, I'm not invested in it i think and i think that's where so much of the action comes to and and that's where again i feel like you need to remember that the driving force of this movie is a story about an old hero not about action which mangold was able to do with logan perfectly here Not so much, which leads me to ask you about Mangold as a director, both of you. Because, obviously, you know, Steven stepped away saying basically he wanted a fresh perspective on this film. And I think by the time they were just doing this, he just didn't want to do it anymore. 
Uh, and I think part of that was, if you ask me, it has to be, you know, George sold the company and he's not going to be the one involved either, really. And so they give it to James Mangold, who, you know, in all honesty, made one of the best superhero movies of all time in Logan, dealing oh, with yeah. an old hero. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you guys how you how you think he did. I mean, was he able to capture the indie magic that Spielberg was so good at delivering time after time? I'd say a little, but that ultimately it kind of feels that you needed to have one of the original makers more involved. At least somebody to put their fingerprints on it and say, let's make sure we're staying true to Indiana Jones canon, you know, um, because unfortunately, too, they did say, you know, that Mangold was very involved in some of the rewrites of the plot, as well as directing the film. Um, And there's just places where it feels like it's a different movie and it's not an Indiana Jones movie. Um, So although there's a a lot that I like about it, I do also question whether he was the right person. Um, And seeing that at one point John Kasdan was involved with the project and later left kind of made me disappointed and wishing that it would have been him instead. (laughs) Mangold is a terrific director. He's made some absolutely magnificent films just the two that immediately popped to mind is the the aforementioned logan and ford versus ferrari i think those are just incredible films like he's unquestionably an extremely gifted director but no you ask if it captures the indiana jones magic no is it a good movie? Yes. It falls into the category of where I would place, say, something like the um, theatrical cut at the at a minimum of Alien 3, where I look at it to this day, and I look at it and I say, it's not a good Alien movie, but it's a good movie. It's actually, it's an interesting, good movie. Not a great movie, but it's a good movie. That's interesting. It's saying some some thoughtful things. It doesn't gel, but this is a talented director who's working with something and some reshoots going on that, you know, it might not all work perfectly, but what's happening is interesting. And I think that the problem is that when you have a situation where one director has put so much of a stamp on a franchise that it's considered his franchise, even more so than, say, um, James Bond, where there was a director, John Glenn, who did a lot of Bond work. And so you wound up getting a visual appreciation for what a Bond film meant, but it was limited by the fact that Glenn was really just sort of like he was doing what the studio wanted, just getting it out the door sort of thing. Like he wasn't... He wasn't an artistic director. He was a technical director. But what he did was effective, and it was what you expected to see out of a James Bond movie for a certain period of time. And so the first person to come after it, it immediately becomes jarring because it's like, oh, this isn't what I'm used to seeing. 
So I think Mangold has an incredible uphill battle and people can decide for themselves whether it's to his credit that he didn't try that hard to match what Spielberg was doing uh, or whether, you know, was that a disadvantage or was that an advantage? Was it interesting? I think that's, you know, your mileage may vary. Mm -hmm. I think that's up to each person. I think that the problem is, is that he's trying to mimic him in some places and not in others. I think the look and the feel of the film, of course, at the very beginning and then at the sequence where they're doing the chase uh, at the ticker tape parade is shot and seems to kind of mimic the look and the feel of the older Indiana Jones films. And then unfortunately, there are other places where just the shot composition and um, cinematography and everything feels completely different. And this is, again, I think this is the thing. Spielberg and Lucas are specifically mimicking other types of storytelling and then created their own Indiana Jones language for that, even with the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And what this movie, I think, required was really sitting down and thinking of, okay, we're in 1969, we have the language of Indiana Jones, but we need to put that in the language of 1969 filmmaking. And what kind of genre are we going to be mimicking then in that? They never do that in this film, and I think that's where it makes this um, a muddied enterprise. Where I think some of the stuff is is very good and feels very Indiana Jones and feels right and all that. And then there's other points where it doesn't. And it's just, there's no consistency. John, you called that out with the effects, uh, the VFX. And I think the lack of consistency in that is is the thing that really um, ends up frustrating me. And I think that's on Mangold as a director, not having that complete vision then of what this film should look like from start to finish, that I think that's a little bit of a failing then, because that's something that Indiana Jones films are known for. And if you're going to make an Indiana Jones film, then you have to be able to do that. And so I would say maybe he's a third successful in that. But I mean, the fact that this film doesn't have the Paramount Dissolve, the Mountain Dissolve, is a travesty. Hmm. Like, you have to have that. That's a part of the Indiana Jones franchise. I mean, yeah, we did it with a gopher hill and King of the Crystal Skull, but at least it was there. You know, the the fact that the map sequence looks completely different from all the other Indiana Jones films is ridiculous. That bothered me. That mm-hmm. really bothered me. The, those are the little love marks that need to remain consistent to make me buy any other change that you've made. I, 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 I'm agreeing with you here. You need those little love marks to remind me that no matter what else changes, these things are the things that are consistent. It's the ship of Theseus. Mm-hmm. How many planks can you remove and the ship is still the same? Well, those are planks that I would argue you can't remove. Mm-hmm. Though that's the mm-hmm. body of the ship. Yeah. You can re- you can repaint it. You can replace all the hull. You blah, 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 but you got to keep the chassis yeah. the same. It's just like when they when 20th Century Fox fanfare was was removed from the beginning of Star yeah. Wars. It was yeah. like this doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I did like though that they at least included the line "This belongs in a museum." Yes, yes, yes. That was good. So John Williams was back for the music. 
here, which I think we're all at least grateful for that being consistent. Uh, and I wanted to ask you both about that. Um, and, you know, do you feel as though this is the sequel trilogy of Star Wars effects? Or do you feel like this lives up with the other four Indiana Jones soundtracks that we've gotten so far? And yes, I did throw shade at the, the sequels. Yes, I did. So, <laughs> But I, I think here you definitely feel that John Williams is back and you, you know, see the fingerprints of it being indiana jones because of that and that you couldn't do it without him i think that you know it was nice for example with the uh star wars anthology films that they had different composers come in and do some things that were similar to william's work but still stood on their own but here you need that hallmark score and um theme to call back to to bring back the nostalgia especially for it being the last indiana jones film um and i felt that it was great i think that um first and foremost i think it's funny you mentioned rogue one and and solo you know the 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 non-trilogy ones i think those are the more successful of the star wars disney era scores than the the sequel trilogy itself um i've gone on and on about that um with this, I think it works as a score. I think it it sounds like Indiana Jones, like John Williams. It's going to take time for me to work with it. And I think largely because I don't have anything that I hooked on to. The way, like the, the Crystal Skull theme is very distinct. It's eerie. Even if you don't like the movie, if you listen to the Crystal Skull theme, like you get the vibe. The opening flashback sequence of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is some of the best music that John Williams has ever composed for something. It's playful. It's energetic. It's thrilling. Like, you know, I listen to it sometimes when I'm driving, you know, like it's so much fun to listen to. You have uh, the the Grail theme. Temple of Doom has all of the signature stuff. Raiders, of course, is one of the greatest scores ever committed, ever for any reason. There's nothing here that made me go, wow, that was new. But maybe that's just a function of it being new. And I'll just have to spend time with it. I have always felt that you can tell how John Williams feels about a story especially a Lucas or Spielberg production based on what the score sounds like. Does it sound like John was interested? I feel like he was 50% interested in this film. And that, you know, I thought it was interesting. The Helena theme in the films feels very reminiscent to those late 60s uh, movies that Cary Grant might have starred in with um, a love interest and kind of like romantic and those type of things. And I, I will, I, I didn't, I don't love the soundtrack album presentation of the score. Maybe I would like it more if it was the complete score. Because... In the film, I felt like there were more cues I was kind of finding myself enjoying. 
but as it's presented on the album, I, I it feels very lackluster. And so I'd be interested just to see the movie again, to, to listen specifically of if, if and when the score itself stands out to me. But, you know, after listening to the score before the film and after the film, it just doesn't have a lot to it where it felt like John was really interested in putting his best foot forward. It was like, this is fine. And... Uh, I feel like the music is, this is fine, but none of it like really grabbed me. You know, like you even said, John, with the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you get that really eerie music. You get that great music where the uh, natives attack when they're uh, at the tomb of, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, De Laurenta Corazon or whoever it was that, you know, they, they find the first crystal skull at, you know, and there's just lots of inventive things that are happening in that. They're just, I don't feel that here. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting. Um, so it will be interesting to be able to go back and see the film and let it sit more. And like you, John, it, maybe it's just one of those things where it's just new and I just need to get used to it. Um, but it doesn't quite have the punch that I would have wanted. Um, you know, I, I do love, especially in the film, the very end there where we're having that reunion with Indy and Marion. And of course, he plays her theme and their love theme together. I think it's gorgeous there. And then the way the film wraps into, you know, the, the Raiders March is great. So, um, but I... Guys, we've talked a very long time, which, of course, it's Indiana Jones. It's the last one. You got to. But I can't wait to kind of see where you all land on your ratings because I think we've had good things to say. We've had some criticisms. And so I don't really know where either of you is going to come down. In fact, John, I don't know what your ratings are because you didn't put them on letterbox. Dang you. Uh, so you didn't spoil it for everyone. So this is the first time people are going to hear about it. But... Uh, We'll start with you, Christy. Where do you land on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? So I thought a lot about it, and I also really appreciated both of your points, too, and um, love our debates about things and where we end up. But I, I, for me, still, even with the criticisms we had, enjoyed the movie and kind of ended up feeling like sort of what John said at one point of it was a good movie, but it could have been a better Indiana Jones movie. Um, So I end up giving it a three and a half out of five um, dials because I, like I said, still really enjoyed it. Um, And I think that it was a great love letter to the character um, but overall just could have been condensed and had more of those pieces of things that make it feel like it's canon with the rest of the Indiana Jones movies. So that's where I end up. As much as it tears my heart asunder to do so, I give this a three, which is not a bad rating. Like, you know, Five stars is like I came out of it raving. Everybody's got to go see this movie. Four stars is I came out saying that was really good. I had a great time. Three is, yeah, it was good. It was good. 
you know, if you go in, just you just want to be entertained and, you know, two and a half hours where you're not thinking about the outside world. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So, um, yeah, so it's a three. And, um, it you know, it's possible that I when I rewatch it when it's on home release, I think more highly of it. I want to. Indiana Jones is one of my daughter's absolutely favorite characters. She loves Indiana Jones. And I asked her point blank because she's young. I said, well, you know, of the the movie that you did see, because she did fall asleep twice. I said, of the movie that you did see, compared to the other four, did you like it as much? And she crinkled her nose and she said, no. I said, but you liked it. She said, yeah. So three stars is that. that I ended up in pretty much the same spot she did, which is three. That's a good way of describing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even with all of the things that we talked about, I will definitely dial my review up from John's. And I think I'm going to land at the same place Christy does right now, which is at three and a half. Maybe with a rewatch, it could go up to four. I don't know. But it could also go down to where John is. So it has room for movement. Um, and I, it's where I really wish that I had been able to see it uh, again. You know, friend of the pod, Yancey Evans, it had seen the film again, and he said watching it again had really ameliorated many of the things that he had kind of been a little bit frustrated with and uh, he had felt more comfortable with the film just in its flow and everything like that which i understand can absolutely happen i've i've done that many times where i come out of the first viewing i'm like and then second view i'm like oh i'll take yeah back you know um and so i don't know if that'll happen with this one i would love it to because you know i love anina jones but i will say this i'm not gonna say the reviews where oh at least it was better than the kingdom of the crystal skull or you know what i'm what i will say is i don't feel like that this destroyed indiana jones tarnished indiana jones made me hate indiana jones wish they'd never made this film at all you know that kind of thing I don't feel any of those feelings, which, you know, when you're making a fifth film in a, in a franchise, it could be Rocky five. Uh, this is not Rocky five. Thank God. Uh, great. Poll. Thank you. <laughs> That's true. This was not Rocky exactly. five. Excellent thank you very point. much. I knew you would Excellent appreciate point. that. So, um, I'm very thankful that that's the case. And, uh, you know, when I, do a rewatch with my wife and we go through all five Indiana Jones films, I'm not going to hate getting to the Dial of Destiny. That's a great feeling. Um, and so, and again, I'm hoping that the ratings will go up. So you'll just have to watch my letterbox, which speaking of that, Christy, if people wanted to catch up with you and, you know, see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you? You can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, I need to rate more things, but I am there <laughs> um, at Bespin Bell, along with Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And then, you know, when I'm not here, I did do a podcast with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. But what about you, John? Well, gosh, you can find me out there as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. I'm on many social networks, and I'd say the Goodreads and 
Letterboxd are the best ones because all I can talk about are books and movies there and nothing else. So, you know, pithy reviews and everything like that. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network where I co-host two shows. One is called House Lights, which is about the works of directors through different combinations that we come up with. And the other one is called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I co-host with one Mr. Matthew Rushing sitting right there talking to both of us, Christy. And I hope everybody will check that out because it's an absolute blast. And if you're wanting to connect with me, I would love to on social media, uh, Instagram, Letterboxd, Twitter, Vero are the places I'm most active under the name Matt Rushing 2 Of course, here on the network, a bunch of other shows that I'm doing, Literary Tracks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. And when I'm not over on the Nerd Party doing aggressive negotiations with John... I have a completed show about the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time, called Owl Post, that I hope you will check out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 